Well, I've never had this situation before. Uh, somebody, uh, Laura, in the prayers managed to steal my introduction, um, as you'll see. But if someone were to make a TV series of your life, what would the theme music be? What would the theme music of your life be that sums up the show, if you like? You know, there's that, always that bit at the beginning, isn't there, where all the characters are montaged in various settings and things like that. And I think that music, the theme music, can make or break a TV series. If you think of TV series like Friends, the theme music is a big part of the show. I'll be there for you. That's sort of what the show stands for. Or Cheers. You know, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Sort of part of the experience of watching it. Or The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It literally tells you the story at the beginning of the show, the whole thing. I think I only ever used to watch it for the theme music, really. And yes, I do know all the words, but no, I'm not going to sing them uh, this morning. But here we have in Exodus chapter 15, the first true song in the Bible. It's like the theme song to the book of Exodus, telling you the big story. And in our Bible, it's called the Song of Moses. But to the Israelites, it was known as the Song of the Sea. It was called the Song of the Sea because of what had just happened. As we reach this chapter, the Israelites have just escaped certain annihilation from the Egyptians by the Lord opening the sea for them to walk through, allowing the Israelites to pass through while the Egyptian army was held at bay by a wall of cloud and fire. And then he brings down the sea upon the advancing army as they sought to pursue them. God has just trounced their biggest enemy. And Moses' response on the other side of the Red Sea is this song. But it's not just Moses' song. Do you see that in verse 1? Actually, the others join in. The people of Israel sang this song. He's leading the singing, but the Israelites are joining in. And yet, this song is immensely personal. Moses says the Lord is his strength. He says the Lord is his song. He says the Lord has become his salvation. So this is not just a song about God, but about who God is to us, to me. And the song really expands on those three points, the strength, the song, and the salvation. And it invites us to ask these questions. What is my strength? What is my song? What is my salvation? And those are the three ideas that we're going to look at in our passage this morning. So firstly, what is my strength? The Lord who fights my battles. Where does your confidence lie? Through most of my life, I think I've been tempted to put my confidence in my brain. Now, some of you might find that quite hard to believe, having got to know me a bit. But my logic works like this. It'll all be okay because I'm smart. Whatever the problem, I'm clever enough that I'll be able to think through a solution. That's me being honest. That's where I'm tempted to put my confidence. For others, it would be other things. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. It'll all be okay because could be I'm resilient. I've gone through worse. I'm strong. I can fight my way out of any problem. It'll all be okay because I'm, I'm well off. I can always buy something that will help me out of my problem. 
I'll be okay because I'm well loved. My friends, my family will get me out of any problem. Might even be I'm sneaky. I can talk myself out of any problem. Those are all things that we can be tempted to say to ourselves. Places where we place our confidence, our strength. But Moses here gives another answer. He says, the Lord is my strength. That is where Moses' confidence lay, in the Lord. And he explains why in verses 3 to 10. I'll read them to us again. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, overthrow your adversaries. You send them out like fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire will have my fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. His strength is the Lord, because the Lord is a fighter. He's a man of war, as Moses puts it here, a warrior. They had a problem a big problem. The largest army in the world at that time, the most powerful one, was chasing them, and they had been cornered by the Red Sea. It should, humanly speaking, have been the end for the Israelites. In any other story, it would have been. They had no weapons, they had no soldiers, and they had no chance to prepare. It should have been a slaughter, shouldn't it? But the Lord is a fighter. And he fought the battle for them. He threw the horse and the rider into the sea. He shattered their enemies with his right hand. He blew the wind that covered them. He consumes them like stubble. If Moses were to finish that sentence, it'll all be okay because... He would answer, because he, the Lord, fights my battles. Because my Lord is a man of war who is unequaled. This is my God, says Moses, verse 2, and I will praise him. So Moses has confidence because the God who fights people's battles is his God, who threw the horsemen and the chariots of the world's biggest army into the sea. God destroyed the threat for them. He beat them in their place. And if you think about it, that's a theme that continues throughout the Bible, isn't it? Jericho, where it's God that sends the walls tumbling down. Midian, where God sends the invading army into confusion and they kill each other. The siege of Jerusalem, where the army dies overnight of a mysterious plague. Or the cross, where Jesus defeated our enemies, death, hell, and sin, and rose victorious. God fights our battles for us. He defeats foes that we could never hope to defeat in our own strength. Humanly speaking, the Israelites should have got trounced by the Egyptians. And humanly speaking, we cannot beat death. We're held in slavery to sin. We're hell-bound, and we have got about as much chance of saving ourselves 
as a newborn baby who can't even stand up, taking on Mike Tyson and winning in his heyday. The gospel is not God comes along and assists us in defeating our enemy. Like we're halfway there and God provides the other half. No, the gospel is that God has defeated our enemies for us through Jesus. And that is certainly true for our big enemies, death, hell, and sin. Christ has utterly saved us from death. Death has lost its sting. One day we will rise again. Hell has no claim over us because Christ has defeated our sin. And the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. Christ has won those victories for us. And our role in that then is to trust in him. To trust him. But what about our day-to-day struggles with sin, with hardships? Well, our role is still to trust him throughout them. Our struggles against sin require effort, it's true, but we struggle with his energy. He is still the giver of victories. I think certainly in my life, the difficulty is not that I trust him too much and don't do enough, but that I trust him too little and try and do it all in my own strength. He is the one who fights our battles. That was Moses' strength. That is our strength. Is it my strength? But Moses doesn't just say that God is his strength. He also says that he is his song. What is my song? That there is none like him. Have a look at verses 11 to 16. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led... In your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leader of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. What do serious songwriters write songs about? They write songs about things that they care about, things that they value, things that are deep in their heart that need to be expressed. It might be a person that they're singing about, or an experience, or an emotion. What is it that Moses' heart just has to express? Verse 11, who is there like you, O Lord, among the gods? What he's saying is that there is no God like our God. He is the true God. He's one in a row. He's in a league of his own. Why is that? Well, the Bible's answer is that all the other ones are fakes. There is no God but our God. That's why the Christians in the first century were known as atheists, because there's an awful lot of gods that we don't believe in, aren't there? We just believe in the one God, the true God. But here, Moses' heart is crying out, no God, not a, not a single one has ever done what our God has done. Has there ever been another point in history where a God or a goddess has rescued his people or 
uh, people in such a way? Has there ever been such a turning of the tides, such a reversal of fortunes? No, never. History has some amazing stories. I commend reading a bit of world history in your spare time. But there has never been anything like this. That's why we're still talking about it over 3,000 years later. That's why we're still making movies about it when there's been so much that's happened since. These events show that our God is unique. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer is, no one. No one is like this other than the Lord. No God has rescued his people in such a way. And that is the theme of Moses' song. That is what's making his heart sing. What an incredible God we have, he's saying. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. A God who does wonders. A God who redeems his people and then leads them in steadfast love. No one else can sing of their God in this way. Because no one else has a God like this. A God who acts. A God who reveals himself to us in his actions and in his word. A God who redeems. A God who saves. No one else has a God like this. Not only is our God the true God, the real God, but he's also the best God. If there were other gods, none of them would be as amazing as our God. So is the awesomeness of God the theme of our song? Are his saving acts what makes our hearts sing? When we're low, do we go to the cross where God rescued us? When we're in need of encouragement, do we go to Calvary where Christ died for us? Those events are the bedrock of our life. They are the source of our hope and our joy. If Jesus' rescue through his death and resurrection doesn't thrill our hearts, then we really do need to go back there, consider them again. Because if they really don't excite us, if they really don't cheer us, then we haven't got a deeper grasp of the gospel as we might have thought. All of us go through dry patches. But if there's nothing there, as we consider how he brought us from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, how he redeemed us, verse 13, how he purchased us, verse 16, how he made us his own, then we need to go back there again, don't we? What does the enemy think about all this? Well, the enemy trembles at the thought of God's saving. In Moses' day, that was the inhabitants of Philistia, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. They had seen what God was prepared to do for his people. What he did do for his people. Almighty God, who moved the very elements to bring his people to safety out of Egypt, who destroyed the world's most powerful nation, the world's most powerful army, also that his people might be safe. What chance did they stand against that God? Thoughts like that would terrify the enemy. And we see that in those verses in verse uh, 14 down to 16. They would terrify them. But they would encourage his people, wouldn't they? That the God would move the boundaries of the seas that he set. 
that he would blow the breath of his nostrils to set the wind blowing to bring the sea back, that he would stretch out his right hand and consume their enemies, all to bring them safely to the other side. Wouldn't that encourage them to think of that? And what about us? That God would not spare his own son to rescue us. That he would pour his wrath on the one and only for us. Is there anything that God would not do to rescue his people? Is there anything he would withhold from us to save us? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And it's not just to bring us to the other side of the water, so to speak. It's to bring us home. That quote from Romans reminds us that salvation is not just being taken halfway. If God has committed himself so much to take us out of what we were, how will he not also take us all the way home? God doesn't half save people. Is that the theme of our song, that we have been saved? That there is none like him who rescues his people? And so our last point, what is my salvation? Planted in the Lord's sanctuary. Have a look at verses 17 to 19. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. What is my salvation? Salvation is not just what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. So salvation in the end is a way of speaking as well as us being saved from something, where we're going to. It's our happy ending, so to speak. What's your happy ending? Caroline and I have been watching How I Met Your Mother on a streaming service, a sort of sitcom series, and the show revolves around a guy called Ted and his various dating exploits. For Ted, it's really clear that his happy ending is a girl. They settle down, marry, and have kids. That's his salvation. Saved not just from singleness, but for married bliss. That's what he's looking forward to. I haven't been to Slimming World in a little while, you might be able to tell. But uh, I expected a bigger laugh then, but never mind. Um, But the happy ending for a lot of people there is to look like people in the magazines. You know, slim, toned, healthy, that's their happy ending. I wonder what your happy ending is. What's the happy ending that you're looking for? Where the Israelites are in Exodus is not the happy ending. Sure, in one sense, they've been saved uh, from uh, the story of Exodus. They've been saved from from the Egyptian army. And you sort of could end the story there, couldn't you? The Prince of Egypt, the the film that I think about when I think about the Exodus story, basically ends there. There's a little bit where you see the Ten Commandments, but basically that's the end of the story. But the shore of the Red Sea is not the goal. Just making it alive to the other side is not the destination. Being saved by God is more than just being rescued from destruction. It's being brought to the right place. 
being brought into God's sphere, his kingdom, his place, his domain, to be in relationship with him. That's ultimately what we're saved for. And that's what we see here. God has brought them out of Egypt, not just to save them from hard slavery to the Egyptians, but to bring them to himself. Moses wasn't lying when he said that they were called out of Egypt to worship their God. And that destination here lies ahead of them. The happy ending is still to come. There's been a lot of ink spilled over exactly what is meant by the mountain of God here that he speaks about that they're going to, his abode, his sanctuary. Some people reckon Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Some people reckon Mount Zion is in mind, where the temple was built. Some people reckon the mountains of Canaan is what's being referred to. If it were the temple on Zion, that would be quite a way off into the future. It would be another few hundred years before that was built. It could be prophetic, looking forward to that, but it's probably better to go with Mount Sinai. The word sanctuary here can mean a temple, or it can just mean a resting place. The word is used of a pasture for sheep as well, a safe place. And the three options needn't be mutually exclusive. Each of these at the time is God's abode. And that's the important thing that we get. They're going to where God is. God is bringing, him to, bringing them to himself, his abode, his sanctuary. God will be there, and that is the main thing. And notice in verse 18, he will reign. He will reign. That, that sort of dropped in at the end. And not just for a little while, but forever and ever. And there's a clue here that whatever we are talking about, whether it's Zion or Sinai or Canaan, that something bigger is being alluded to. This isn't just about bringing them to a wilderness mountain for a few months, or even a plot of land for a few thousand years. This is about something that will go on into eternity. The promised land, Mount Zion, the temple, all those things point forward to something else. Another promised land, another sanctuary, another abode, a better ending. And likewise, our salvation is not just about being saved from the terrors of hell, but for the glories of heaven. Gathered around the heavenly Mount Zion, gathered into the new Jerusalem when it comes down from heaven to the new earth, in perfect relationship with our God. So God doesn't just want to rescue you from hell. He wants to know you. He wants relationship. For the moment, that relationship is still marred by sin that so stubbornly clings on to us. But this passage points us forward. One day that will be gone. We will, be know, we will know as we are known. We'll see him face to face. That is our hope. That is our happy ending. Firmly planted, set, rooted, solidly abiding with God. Is that your happy ending? Is that what sustains you when our endings on earth are not so happy? We have a wonderful future to look forward to. Moses saw it and we need to see it too. Because as we said at the beginning, this is not just Moses' song. Even then it wasn't. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider, 
he is thrown into, a, into the sea. Even then, this was a song that was taken up and repeated. The women sang, the women danced. Miriam got a tambourine out and they all went to sing the song of the sea together as the Israelites, as it was known to the Israelites. This song was not just Moses' song. This song was not just a song for men. This was not just a song for women. It was not just a song for the Israelites. The song of our awesome God who defeats our enemies, who rescues his people, who leads them safely home, is a song that's been taken up and repeated over countless generations. It was taken up by Deborah and Barak after victory over Sisera and the Canaanites. This is what it said then, between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still between her feet. He sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell dead. It was taken up by Hannah when she gave birth to Samuel. My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. It was taken up by Mary after she had learned of Jesus' coming birth. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And then one day it will be taken up in glory as believers gather together after the defeat of Babylon, as we were hearing last week. They actually sing the song of Moses, it says. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are all your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come to you and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. That will be our song one day in glory. The question is, is it now? Is this our song now? Is this our song day by day? Would this be the theme music to my life if it were to sum up what my life was about? That the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. The Lord has become my salvation. If it isn't, it can be. And I'm speaking as much to Christians this morning as I am to non-Christians. We need to go back to the Lord. We need to turn back to him. We need to return to the Lord in faith and repentance and come back to the heart of it all, the Lord himself, who he is and what he's done. I don't do this very often. In fact, I've never done it before. But if you want to come and pray with someone afterwards, I'm going to hang around in the foyer Afterwards, we'll find somewhere quiet to pray. But it might just be what you need this morning. Come back to the Lord. Or why not spend a bit of time this afternoon, just you and your Bible, or sometime this week? Not when you'd normally do it, some other time. Read again of the amazing wonders that Moses speaks of here. Look at his amazing deeds. Let them thrill your heart again as you see God rescue his people again and again and again. And as you see what the Lord has done for us in Christ, let your heart be turned to him. Come to the one who is our strength, the Lord who fights our battles, who is our song, there is none like him, who has become our salvation, who will plant us in his permanent abode. And rejoice. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider, 
he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Father, thank you that you don't just rescue us from the bad things in our lives, Father, from sin and death and hell. Father, thank you that you've rescued us for relationship with you. Father, help us to know that. Help us to experience that in our lives. Father, so often we can feel so cold. Father, help the words of this song to thrill our hearts. Remind us again of all that you've done for us in Christ. And help us to turn to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.